If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only getting part of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and gain exclusive access to the first 100-episode archive, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I speak with Susan Rowland about her work in Jungian arts-based research, as well as her career as a writer of what she calls cozy mystery novels about undervalued women. Susan Rowland, PhD, teaches at Pacifica Graduate Institute and is the author of 10 books on Jung, the feminine, literature, and the arts. Her last book, written with soulmate Joel Weishaus, is Jungian Arts-Based Research and the Nuclear Enchantment of New Mexico. For a decade, Susan has been working on a project to examine feminine heroism as a way to cultural renewal. Her first novel, The Sacred Well Murders, was published by Chiron in 2022. The book explores marginalized women becoming involved in epoch-defining events that entail literal and symbolic violence. The Alchemy Fire Murder, a Mary Wand Walker mystery, is the second in the series. You can find the link to her website in the episode notes. I really enjoyed our conversation and hope that you find it as interesting and inspiring as I did. As always, this episode is made possible through the generous support of the Howl in the Wilderness Patreon community. If you'd like to enjoy early release of full ad-free episodes and access the archive of the first 100 episodes of the podcast, please consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks for listening. Enjoy. Susan Rowland, welcome to the podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for asking me, Brian. Well, yeah, thanks for taking me up on the offer. We're here to, I mean, you've written many books. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think today it'd be good to focus in on the book on Jungian arts-based research. Uh, you sent me the introduction to it. And uh, I, I was actually quite excited by it and um, quite inspired. Mm -hmm. And so I'm excited to talk with you about this today because it's uh, an area of Jungian study that um, I, I don't think I've really encountered before. Mm. There's not a lot explicitly written um, about this area from a overtly Jungian point of view. Um, oh. Sean McNiff uh, was a pioneer here, but he didn't um, really go into the way in which Jung was part of this um, enterprise. Mm, okay. Before we dive into that, I wonder um, if we could just hear a little bit about your background. Uh, mm. Particularly, I'm interested in when you got interested in psychology. Well, I got interested in Jung. Um, I didn't get interested in psychology, and I'm not trained in psychology. 
I was doing a, a, an English literature degree in Oxford um, in the UK in the early 1980s. And um, I was um, having some religious issues, having come from um, uh, a parent, my mother, who was uh, very fundamentalist in her Christianity. And a friend uh, gave me his copy of Memories, Dreams, Reflections. And I read it. It seemed to make a lot of sense and it seemed to offer an approach to the psyche and to religion that I could be comfortable with. So I retained my interest in Jung while going through um, degrees in literature and realized that um, there wasn't really very much literary theory that included Jung. Um, there had been some Jungian literary criticism. Uh, this seemed to have um, been marginalized and was no longer practiced. So when I came to do my PhD in literature, I wanted to go back and look into Jung and see how far a Jungian approach to the psyche could um, contribute to a psychological literary theory. Was there a particular author that you looked at through the Jungian lens for the PhD? Um, what I realized was that uh, in the 1980s in the UK, a number of novelists had written quite well-known novels, uh, in some cases winning awards, where there had been an explicit use of Jung that these novelists knew about Jung and included a Jungian dimension into their work. Um, there, so I decided to look at two female and two male authors. The female authors were Doris Lessing and uh, Michelle Roberts. And the male authors were Nicholas Mosley and Lindsay Clark. And that became... My doctoral thesis, which was eventually published as my first book, C.G. Jung and Literary Theory. And I got interested in um, sort of how gender could be attention in these novels, attention that was also to be found in Jung's work. And that led on to writing about Jung and the feminine and of my Jungian books, the most um, famous one, I suppose, is Jung, a feminist revision. Um, and that that continues to be of, of interest to, to people, even though it came out over 20 years ago. Towards, towards the end of my um, work on Jung and cultural theory, I discovered arts-based research and realized that it, it really wanted to have Jung in it. <laughs> but a lot of the uh, literature, um, academic work on arts-based research didn't have Jung in it. And so I wanted to write a book with 
Joel Weishaus on Jungian arts-based research because he had produced, he'd been producing Jungian arts-based research for decades without having that theoretical framework around it. And one of his um, most um, powerful works is the nuclear enchantment of New Mexico. And it seemed that th there would be an opportunity to write a book uh, for people who were interested in arts-based research and people who were interested in Jung and to include in the book a very powerful example of what could be done with Jungian arts-based research. Because the whole idea, I think it's an idea whose time has come um, because it draws on very deep currents um, that are both historically powerful but have been radically marginalised in Western modernity. Hmm. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about arts-based research, because uh, it was a new framework for me, and I'm sure some of the listeners, uh, it'll be new to them too. Yeah. Well, this is something that has been developed in universities since the 1990s, and principally in um, the social sciences. And research has a lot of different connotations in our culture, um, but it's culturally been dominated by the idea of science and the scientific method, whereby new knowledge is made by um, experiments that are repeatable. So somebody can do a uh, experiment in Vancouver, it can be replicated in Sydney, Australia, and will have the same results. And that, and that is then taken to be proof that something has been discovered, that some new knowledge has been made. And that's fine and has produced a lot of very powerful discoveries that have influenced and, and shaped the world we know today. Um, if you kind of look closely at what's going on there, you can see that this research is um, dependent on what's known as the subject-object split, that the researcher has to be totally separate from the matter being researched. And this is said to guarantee objectivity and that this is a very good thing. Unfortunately, there is a kind of worldview there that is no longer um, taken for granted because if you're going to rely on the subject-object split, if you're going to rely on that kind of scientific research, you are presupposing that the world, reality, consists of stable objects that you can just um, find out about by going through this, this process. Now, that is really not actually how the world is currently seen. Also, it doesn't work for some kinds of research. In, in particular, it doesn't work for research on people, uh, particularly groups of people. So uh, researchers who were 
involved with, say, researching into education, researching how you know groups of people work in society, they realised a long time ago that they needed different form of research. And they developed this, this research called qualitative, which means that the researcher is involved, is allowed to be involved in the research, is allowed to be talking to people, is allowed to take their own feelings and thoughts into account. So that was that was happening and that's been going for, for quite some time. It's been useful. However, there's still something not being included in the way the researcher is allowed to be part of the research. And that could be called the imagination. Um, and it's it's not a, a radically new thing to suggest that artists doing any kind of art from painting to photography to poetry writing to filmmaking, that when you do art, you discover things, that things come up or things are put in, in such a way that something new comes out of it. Um, if you go back Far enough in Western modernity, you find um, poetry, for example, being used as a way of understanding the world, as being used as research. If you go into other cultures, you find things like um, the arts, storytelling, for example, being used as medicine or being um, irritated. Um, part of religious practice. So the idea that the imagination isn't important, isn't capable of discovering anything new, that art isn't research, this comes to be seen as the product of a particular history in modernity and not as a kind of self-explanatory situation. So in the social sciences, there developed uh, this thing called arts-based research, and it means that art is not the result of research, but that doing art can be a research process. Um, and one of the things that uh, was recognised fairly early on um, was that when we're talking about art as a research process, we're talking about the psyche producing images that are then materialized in the art form. And these images can end up in music. Uh, they can end up, you know, visually, they can end up verbally, but they, they are a materialization of, of something in the psyche. And um, about that time in, in the 1990s, Sean McNiff began to write about um, arts-based research for trainees of psychotherapy. And he, he used a Jungian framework of the psyche, but he wasn't very explicit about it. Um, 20 years later or so, uh, Jung's red book was published in 2010 and it's 
it's attracted a lot of attention and uh, a lot of critical writing. Um, and it's been recognised as a pioneering form of arts-based research. There's an irony to this because, um, you know, it is very artistic. It has experimental paintings. It has experimental writing. Uh, you know, Jung um, made it in the 1920s in the form of a, a medieval manuscript. So he was he was clearly using artistic ideas and processes to try to get somewhere with his own psyche. And in the end, he seems to have rejected the Red Book because it was too artistic and not scientific. And he was in a world that demanded that he um, become, become scientific in some way or, or justify his work as science. Um, so now in the 21st century, he's recognised as a pioneer of arts-based research um, and, and that is becoming recognised as, as real research. So I saw this and I saw that many of my students are very creative, very artistic, and that the if it would be possible to examine um, what a Jungian perspective could bring to arts-based research and make that explicit, that this might be useful for people who care about Jungian psychology, uh, to want to investigate the psyche in a creative way, and it might be useful for people who want to do arts-based research to have a greater understanding of uh, Jungian psychology and how it could help. For example, um, Jung devised what he saw as a therapeutic practice that he called active imagination, which is wor working with a psychic image and, and allowing it to develop its own autonomy and being. It's long been recognised that this is something that artists do all the time. Um, and now it can be recognised as a form of research, um, whether that research, you know, uh, whatever kind of artistic form that, that, um, that working with images eventually takes. Mm -hmm. mm. And... Um... Would it always be research into the nature of one's own psyche or the psyche in general? Or could you apply that to uh, any area of research? I think you can apply it to most areas of research. Um, it, this is, you know, that's a great question because this is something that's very exciting. Yes, Jungian arts-based research can be applied to the psyche. It can be applied to one's own psyche. It can be apply to, say, the psyche of a group or even the psyche of a culture. Um, but it can also be applied to uh, something very different. Um, I don't want to say that anything could be researched in this way, but one of the reasons we decided to put the nuclear enchantment of New Mexico in this book is that that particular epic poem is 
an examination of how and why and what are the implications of producing weapons of mass dis destruction. Um, that, that poem examines what these weapons of mass destruction are, the multiple histories that it comes from, the horrible effects of using these weapons, um, and what it means psychically, both to individuals and the culture that continues to develop these weapons. No one would immediately suggest that Jungian arts-based research can research nuclear weapons, but it, it has done so in a very successful way. So you could apply, you could use Jungian arts-based research to, to very kind of big external topics, you know, um, what are the uh, responses um, to or, or the, the way in which we might be imaging the climate emergency, for example? Or you might want to use Jungian arts-based research to look at a particular place, um, a relationship to a particular place or uh, a particular city. Um, or a particular group. Um, so, um, for example, uh, people have worked with migrants, people have worked with um, underprivileged populations by, for example, um, making a play with them. You can do it collaboratively. You can do it individually, but you can also do it collaboratively. And, and that can then lead to new knowledge that you would not have got any other way. My own practice of Jungian arts-based research is writing mystery novels. And I'm trying to write about the modern world and experiencing the modern world through the lens of a detective story. And... Pretty well every novel I've produced, and I'm working on my fourth, the third one is about to be published, um, there has been material come up in the process of writing that is unexpected and uh, revealing. So, for example, I uh, in the first published novel, The Sacred Well Murders, I wanted to investigate the way in which the, the Western, the way in which we all come from an indigenous society. Um, even in, in my case, the indigenous society is, is long in the past. So someone who's come from the UK uh, back, back, back when the, um, my people were Celts. We don't know much about the Celts. We know a few things. So I, I investigated that by having 21st century people feel called to become Celts and that this, this created problems. So we had this, so this story kind of eventually was, was assembled and um, I did quite a lot of research into the Celts to include this in the story. 
But a couple of things happened during the writing that were very much from my unconscious and not from my conscious mind. And in particular, one character is um, wakes up after being um, in a coma and she's she's lost her identity and she comes out with, I am the wife of Leah and I have no name. Now that her coming out with that was was her and not me. You know, the image spoke to me um, as it does in these Jungian oriented practices. So okay, I went with that and I let her be the wife of Leah for a good part of the story. It wasn't until the very end of writing that story several months later that um, I realised what that was could have been about, which is that this, this Leah character, who is a real character from Celtic research, that this Lear is also the prototype of King Lear, uh, Shakespeare's King Lear. And one of the interesting things about that play is that King Lear, King Lear's wife, the mother of the daughters, is never named. She's clearly dead. She's not named. There is no reference to her. She is a big hole in the play. And yet, as the queen... Uh, and as the mother of the family, she is the only person who could have stopped the catastrophe. So she stands for the, the the powerful mother archetype, if you like. And and so very deep down as I was doing this writing, this idea of the um the the divine mother, if you like, had had come through the the processes. Um, so I have over the last few years been working with students doing Jungian arts-based research projects, very variable projects. Um, there, there is a student of mine who's finishing a PhD and her art practice is weaving. Um, there's been uh, filmmaking and there's been photography and there's been painting and during the process of doing the art stuff comes up that wouldn't otherwise be manifested and having this thing called Jungian arts-based research is a way of understanding it as research and on the one hand this is this is very new because universities, the academy has not recognised art as research um, for forever. And on the other hand, it's not that new because in many ways it, it, it goes back to um, a different worldview, the worldview of alchemy, in which alchemists were, we think of them as, as, as proto-scientists, but in many ways, they were artists as well. And they they wrote about the art of alchemy that was also the science of alchemy. So in a big way, this is about healing splits in knowledge, splits that have dominated um, modernity and 
contribute to the way in which our culture is itself split and causes psychic splits in people. Mm -hmm. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say maybe not just alchemy either, but um, these other ways of knowing through uh, intuition and imagination, like I think about the yogis and their their maps of the That's chakras right. and energy yeah. lines, the meridians in Chinese medicine, these uh, kind of shamanic indigenous um, mm. practices that uh, formed a, a kind of worldview mm. uh, for those people, and that yeah. was um, that was the way you got to know things is through mm -hmm. you know visionary states and dreams, yeah. uh, observing nature. Um, mm -hmm letting the imagination speak through nature. Um, yeah, so it does feel like a kind of reclamation of an earlier mm. way of knowing that uh, has been denigrated uh, since the Enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really, really great point. Um, and I mean, this Jungian arts-based research can do, is can be quite big and can cover a lot of areas. There is another framework which covers what you've just said and what I've been talking about and that's um transdisciplinarity as um as expressed as argued by Basarab Nicolescu who has a book from modernity to cosmodernity and he explicitly he, the crucial thing about his vision of knowledge is to get rid of the hierarchy, to get rid of this idea that, that Western-produced knowledge and in particular physics is, is somehow the top thing and everything else is, is subordinate in some ways or even completely mistaken. He says that we need to be thinking of knowledge as um, a network and that the knowledge, that the knowledges of indigenous people, the knowledges through the body, um, he doesn't actually say this, but it, it, implicitly the knowledges of the arts, that these knowledges are as valuable as any other knowledge, and um, that that we need to get to a state of transdisciplinarity where. Um, it's we're no longer doing colonialism through knowledge, that rather we can decolonize the world of knowledge by having this transdisciplinary sense whereby what he calls tradition, the traditional shamanic knowledges are regarded as as equally um knowledgeable, equally powerful and effective. And of course, in in today's world, um, with so many crises and in particular crises of uh, mental illness, it may be that the shamanic, creative, intuitive knowledges are, should be considered more important because we are suffering from their neglect and repression and denial. Mm -hmm. And how? Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought up uh, decolonization. It was what was coming to my mind as well. And um, 
Uh, I spoke with Dylan Hoffman, who's one of your colleagues mm -hmm. at Pacifica, and yeah. uh, that was a subject matter that we spoke mm -hmm. about at length. And uh, it's kind of a central project for me these days. Mm -hmm. um, I think even these uh, intuitive, imaginative uh, ways of knowing are perhaps not just uh, equal in value to so-called empirical science, mm -hmm. but perhaps even primary to mm. um and I think about those examples of scientists who come from a dream or some kind of psychedelic experience mm -hmm. with a vision of the the DNA helix or yeah. whatever it might be. And um, then through their scientific method, uh, prove that theory to be mm. uh, as true as I guess a theory can ever be, but uh, it's kind of validated through the scientific mm. methodology. Um those just seem like, uh, you know, they're treated as kind of uh, anomalies, mm. um, kind of strange, maybe mm. coincidences or something. But uh, I think it speaks to something deeper that um, Jungian art space research is uh, trying to get at. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this arts-based research, and particularly in its Jungian form, is really a new paradigm. Um, uh, but it's also not a new paradigm because in so many ways it is a rediscovery of knowledges that indigenous cultures hold. Um, and 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 so it is very important to, to see it as as potentially really important as a as a decolonizing uh, move. Because you know, decolonizing is is something we all want to do, but it is actually quite difficult. And to to feel that that even um, out of this this culture that we're born into that splits our psyche, uh, that it's possible to kind of find these elements of. Um, ways of being that at least get close to um the ways of what's been what's been lost um i think that's very important yeah i think one of the main difficulties that i can see is that um we're you know we're formed by the colonial mm. worldview mm -hmm. and so the practice, uh, well, decolonization, I think, has to come out of an experience, a kind of breakthrough of mm. the the irrational or the synchronistic mm. that um, kind of shocks your system mm. uh, to open up to other possibilities. Mm. I, I don't know if it's something that um, can kind of be grasped cognitively and just mm. and, and worked at. I always feel like there has to be that kind of numinous breakthrough mm. that uh challenges the egoic structure and causes a kind of breakdown so mm -hmm. for me i'm you know i'm trying to always promote um practices that can induce that kind of breakthrough because i yeah. see that as the kind of the seed of the revolution mm. yeah exactly i mean we are we can't stop being the product of our culture upbringing and in particular our education um but and also although we could 
we, we could perhaps apprentice ourselves to shamans. Um, I, I'm not sure that somebody like me, for example, could ever truly become part of an indigenous culture. And there is there is the danger of, you know, appropriation mm-hmm. and the fact that we have to take seriously the extent to which we've been indoctrinated into into the colonized paradigm but we can deconstruct the um the the kind of um psyche that we we are continually encouraged to have and i think jung did that in his understanding of uh, the necessity of building a relationship with the irrational that would ultimately decenter the ego. Um, that he, he still remains in many ways a product of a kind of white Euro, Eurocentric colonial culture. But I think he instinctively realized that what we'd lost um, and what we'd done to others and done to ourselves through colonialism was ultimately going to destroy us. So he kind of did a lot of the digging away of uh, the, the the hype of rationality. Um, and when we get to the way in which um, ensouled, you might say, or um you know individuating arts practice can can encourage that encounter with the numinous that um can be done through other ways but it can encourage that counter encounter with the numinous that is visible i mean one of the things that i like about jungian art space research is it's actually very it's also about communication. It's about changing the world. And as I like to say to Jungian clinicians, it's doing therapy with the world. Mm-hmm. What you end up with is a work of art that materializes the idea of the, the psyche as having independent energies and the images being independent of the ego. So that work of art can go into the world, it can go to other cultures, it can last for a thousand years, and the artist doesn't own the result. You know, the artist is deeply involved with making the art, but the artist doesn't own the meaning. The meaning is something that is renegotiated by every uh, viewer or consumer or witness of the art. And that means that it's 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 decolonizing in that way too, because there is no kind of you know great artist like on 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 the sort of romantic model of the artist where the artist was like God was the ultimate creator and and um this idea that the person doing the uh, art or writing the book, you know, owns the meaning of the words. Well, 
no. <laughs> um, the art is 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 a is a kind of permanent treatment goes into the world and changes the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like that shift uh, that happened somewhere along the way, maybe in the Romantic period, where the artist became a genius mm -hmm. rather than um, the genius being a kind of uh, tutelary or guiding spirit that accompanied yeah. everyone. Yeah, exactly. And everyone had an accompanying genius. Yeah. And you could either be in touch with it or not, I guess. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, but that kind of claiming the kind of dissolving of the the genius into the individual and the kind of heroic ego um, gets yes. put forward. Yeah, yeah, and it's often it's often overlooked that individuation begins with the death of the hero. This is not about the heroic ego or the heroic artist as somehow conqueror but rather the the death of that kind of um colonial um dominance mm -hmm. and um we could maybe transpose that the death of the hero as to uh well the heroic attitude of the kind of western empiricist mm. that if i can measure it i i kind of own it i can dominate yes. it Exactly. Christian ideal that's woven yeah. into it, dominion over the world. Yeah. No, that's exactly exactly the case. Um that so it's very it's very subversive, right? Yeah, it mm. is absolutely in, entirely subversive. Um and um it, this this whole business of heroism is I think very culturally um contested at the moment um and at least yeah 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 i mean you know we can get into toxic ma masculinity for example at that point um although jung does talk about the hero once or twice he assimilates the hero um in one of his essays i think it's the trickster essay where the hero becomes christ and of course the, the thing about Christ as a hero is he ends up on a cross. He does not end up as the, the ruler of his of his land. And Jung's explicitly against that kind of ego dominance form of heroism, despite his own um problems with the feminine. <laughs> yeah. I'm interested to read your your book, um uh The Feminist Revision. Mm -hmm. book on Jung yeah because mm -hmm. that has always been a problem for me with with Jung is mm -hmm. the anima anima split the contrasexual mm -hmm. idea I just I mean the first time I encountered that I just it didn't mm -hmm. it didn't feel right to me it didn't seem true to my experience and I was just like why is this idea still kicking around Mm. <laughs> and then I found Hillman, of course, who yes. um, questioned all of all of that stuff. You know, Jung's idea of the the self, the kind of heroic, yeah. the godlike self, let's say, mm. uh, the heroic quest to um, mm -hmm. uh, to unify with the self. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm assuming that because you teach at uh, Pacifica, that you have an uh, a kind of affinity for James Hillman. Yes. Um, I like Hillman's work a lot, um, and 
you know, I think he he um, his polytheistic psychology um, deals with a lot of the problems in in Jung. Um, uh, Jung kind of is 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 very hung up with Christianity, um, and and that. I think that's one of the reasons that he's so hung up with opposites. I mean, it's there in his philosophy background, but the whole business of God and Satan and all the rest of it. And that's partly why you get the anima animus, this desire to have somehow see masculine and feminine as opposites, which, you know, doesn't work at all. Um, What I like about Jung is historically speaking you know he he gets and this is the the feminist summary here that that jung gets that modernity is sick because it has repressed or rejected so much that has been designated as feminine um and in that sense he's he's a boon for feminism um however <laughs> jung's Jung wants to rescue modernity for men. So he the feminine becomes the anima and the anima is uh, a way of saving men from this lack of the feminine in modernity. Um, you know, socially, Jung was not at all interested in men and women having any equality. He wanted to save men. Um and right, the anima was like a redemptive figure for the middle aged yeah, man. That's right. That's yeah. right. And James Hillman does a wonderful kind of undoing of that through his polytheistic psychology. Um, I guess from a female point of view and also from a 21st century point of view, I do think I, I think we need to kind of go beyond Hillman's affection for the Greco-Roman gods. Yes, please. Um, yeah. <laughs> I've been I mean, calling for that too. Yeah. My joke is that, like he said, we have to go south, and he meant like the south to the Mediterranean. And yeah. I said, like I joked with Dylan Hoffman, I said, no, there's a lot more you could go further south, James. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And I mean, I think what's clear from studying Jung and Hillman and all the others um, who've who've written about this with with some authority is that myth is psychic shaping and it's not any particular myth. I mean, Hillman felt that, you know, he was talking to the Western world and the Western world had been built on Greco-Roman myths. And that's, that's an argument, but we're not in that world anymore. Um, we are in a world where we need to kind of recognize uh that uh, we need to we need to decolonize and we need to we need to see other cultures through their myths and and how that reveals the psyche in other cultures and and you know many students at Pacifica are looking at that and that's partly why I wanted to go back to the Celts as opposed to, uh, you know the Romans and and the Greeks that that uh, came were kind of either melded with or or, or the Celts were seen through them, and um, you know it's 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 a very interesting 
um, foundation to have for have for the mystery novels. The other thing that has come recently through Hillman is, um, and he's not explicit about that, but I think he could have been, and that is sexuality. Um, that really Freud and Jung felt that human sexuality was developmental and it really isn't its archetypal. Um, and so I say in Junger Feminist Revision, I argue from the fluidity of Jung's psyche that there's no reason why, um, you know, women should not have an anima and men an animus, that, that same-sex love is not, you know, something that needs to be seen as outside depth psychology. Um, but kind of thinking recently, it 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 is indeed archetypal in the sense that people who who feel non-binary that that trans or same-sex love these these ways of being are equally uh can equally be considered within within depth psychology mm -hmm. yeah yeah for sure mm -hmm. um <clears throat> Yeah, there's a lot of uh, places we could go from there. Uh, I wonder if we could um, circle back around to arts-based research. Of course. Uh, I guess one question I still have about it is, uh, what distinguishes a Jungian arts-based research from other arts-based researches? Is, mm. it, uh, is it the incorporation of something like an act of imagination or, or like the preliminary to the art making, the act of imagination or a dream, mm -hmm. uh, for instance? Or is it the the kind of Jungian framework of uh, archetypes, ego unconscious, all of that that we use to read the artwork once it's been made? Mm. You can see I'm like pointing at like maybe like three steps of the art making process. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, well, basically either and both. Um, I mean, I, um, I don't think Jungian arts based research is necessarily going to look very different from arts-based research because it seems to me that arts-based research does things that could be called Jungian if they were recognised as, as Jungian. Um, what I've, what I've uh, come to, a way I've come to present Jungian arts-based research is in, in stages, um, which I've called the the four P's, um, and the, and the stages are um, paradigm, project, uh, sorry, paradigm, preparation, process, and projectio. Um, so paradigm is the arts based research. It is the Jungian arts-based research paradigm, which I think is stronger and more metaphysical than the arts-based research paradigm, because the Jungian arts-based research paradigm recognizes synchronicity um, and emphasizes the independence of the artwork. Uh, because the artwork is modelled on the 
Jungian idea of the image as being independent of the ego. And so the artwork in the Jungian art space research paradigm is independent of the consciousness or the, the dominance of the artist. And it is potentially connected to things in the world that are knowable, like genre, but also it may be connected to things in the world that are unknown through synchronicities that have happened, but also synchronicities that are yet to have happened. So, um, you know, if I, I might be reading a poem that was written a thousand years ago and there is a synchronous event happening because that poem is speaking to something that, to my, to my dream last night. So there is that particular paradigm. And I think understanding that paradigm is a good place to start. The next step... Can I, can I just pause there for a second? I, I can see that kind of uh, functionally working to even, even more so help loosening the claim of the artist on the work as, as yeah. the maker of the work, but rather maybe more as a... Uh, an interpreter or manifester of the psychic image that has its own autonomy in life and reveals itself to the observer who can then make art. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a terrific way of putting it. I mean, I don't have a problem with the word maker, but, uh, but maker in the sense that you're collaborating with something. You're collaborating with with the unknown psyche, but at a certain level, you're collaborating, which includes collective things. Uh, at a certain level, you're collaborating with reality, the world, whatever, seen as inspirited. Um, right, like you're participating in in creation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and we see that in in Jung's um, writing on synchronicity. So there's that, that and then and then preparation, I think, includes, uh, especially if you are doing a, a formal research project that you want to present as research, preparation includes the regular kind of academic research that you might do. So I read books about ancient Celts, for example, but it's not limited to that, because if you want the whole psyche, then you've got to prepare the whole person. So you might start paying attention to dreams and doing active imagination. Um, the, the, the more ways you can involve your body in the preparation is, you know, that's, that's very important. So in, in, I live in America, but I visit the UK. I made a point of going to places um, and, and Celtic sites and, you know, being immersed in in what was in what was left um, mm -hmm. of uh, of that world, so that right. So it could be a, a number of things, like even uh, like pilgrimage, like you said, uh, mm. uh, encountering geography, but maybe even ritual. Yeah. Um, so bringing in like smells and uh, yeah. other ritual components. Um, I can imagine like maybe um, finding Celtic songs and, and singing yeah. them, and yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it, you you could put it in terms of the kinds of preparation a shaman might do. Um, 
So preparation, and then there is process, and process is paying attention to the psyche as you are engaged in the art making. Um, and, you know, that might include um, doing active imagination or amplification with things that come up um, during the process of, of making the work, um, talking to people about different art forms, even, even the um, things that we think of as very rational, like using a camera to make a film, actually, you know, some of the best film directors do kind of acknowledge uh, the way in which their psyche influences what they're doing and how they're doing it and that the sense that there are images coming up for them as well as coming to them through through the camera. Yeah, well, a great example is David Lynch, who yeah. uh, really lets his, his kind of dream process uh, mm. uh, inform his filmmaking process and talks about actually kind of being surprised at what emerges through this yeah. collaboration with with the depths. That's yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and then projectio, which is is just a term taken from alchemy, um putting the work out there. That can be that can be quite complex. I mean I use that really to mean two things. One is different ways we might make encourage the work to generate meaning but also putting it out there and and you know um enabling it to have a relationship with the world however however that happens um so kind of to demonstrate how meaning can be can be made i've in the book i use um an idea from one of the um uh social science theorists of arts-based research uh there's a book called the arts-based research primer which i think is really useful and in it um james rowling jr um categorizes he he, he suggests four types of arts-based research and his four categories can actually be very um, helpfully used as four ways of making meaning. So his first category, he, he calls it analytic, which is actually a rather unhelpful term because it doesn't mean analyzing. It means to what extent the art is saying something new or different about its materials. So a painting will sometimes say something about paint or paintings, or a poem will be saying something about the nature of poetry or, or the nature of language. And if you apply that to your, a work which might be your own and you haven't thought about that, new stuff kind of comes out uh, up. For me, it's with, you know, what is... What is um, what are my mystery novels saying about mystery novels? And that's 
you know, that's actually quite interesting to see what, what happens there. His second type is synthetic, which again isn't a helpful term, um, but what he means is very interesting, and that is that, that art often synthesizes ideas in a new way, ideas and languages. It's really, the, it's really collage. M much art is actually collage in the sense that uh, old ideas are are um, combined in a new way. Mm -hmm. um, and thirdly is critical activist, which is kind of self-explanatory. To what extent is this work of art an action that is that is uh, critical of society and that um, may in fact be um, trying of itself to change it? And fourthly, um, one very dear to Jungians, um, arts-based research can be improvisatory. It can be about the flow, the discovery of the flow, um, which is a state of the psyche where the ego isn't in control. And um, that it, so it's, you could say that it's telling us something about the psyche. It's telling us something about um, the nature of, of being, but improvisatory. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And so I find those quite useful as ways of generating meaning. Um, they're not the only ways meaning can be generated, but if I'm working with students, you know, if, if they apply those four ideas, they've, there's a lot of stuff that starts to come up. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, and the other thing that's that's kind of implicit in all this is that um, we could treat any existing work of art as Jungian arts-based research. If we applied some of these ideas as lenses to look at the to look at the work, you know, you could actually um reinterpret the the work as a piece of research yeah sure that well that makes total sense if we think that um the image has its own autonomy and mm. that uh, once it's uh, projected into the world it's kind of released into the wild yes where it continue to live and to inform mm. others for for years to come mm. um even if that wasn't the artist's intention, it doesn't matter because the, yeah. the image has its own uh, kind of uh, yeah. objectives, <laughs> yeah. perhaps. Yeah, I mean, the, the the artist's intention doesn't matter very much at all in this. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the ways in which our culture is stuck <laughs> is, is by... Um, uh, being hung up on, on artist's intention. This was an excerpt of a longer conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Thanks.